0: Welcome to the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators podcast. My name is Natalia Ottlinger, and today I'm meeting Amanda Lee, only qualified lawyer, arbitrator, and one of the distinguished fellows of the Chartered Institute, to discuss diversity in the field of international alternative dispute resolution. Thank you very much, Natalia. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. As we all know, disputes arise everywhere, between people of different colours, ethnicities, genders and backgrounds. Dispute resolution in the form of arbitration or mediation is an extremely international practice. Every year, a larger and larger number of cases are being resolved across multiple jurisdictions, involving parties from all over the world. It should therefore follow that the group of decision makers reflects the diverse community of arbitration users. However, the faces of councils leading legal teams and of the arbitral tribunals are overwhelmingly white, Anglo-European or American and male. That's why I'm here today with Mandy, who is a dedicated advocate of diversity in ADR to discuss the scale, origins and potential solutions to this problem. So let's start with the basics. How would you describe the scope of the problem of diversity, Mandy? What do you think about the disproportion? Well, determining the scope of this problem
1: raises a number of challenges. And it's really important to keep in mind that many parties choose certain types of ADR because they're keen to resolve their dispute in a private forum. We're not left entirely in the dark, though. Arbitral institutions are increasingly publishing statistics in respect of the arbitral appointments that they make, and CEDA, for example, recently surveyed members of the commercial mediation profession. We do have some information about the size of the problem. However, there are stark gaps in the available data, particularly when it comes to certain types of diversity. In general, institutions do not collect and publish data pertaining to, for example, the sexual orientation or socio-economic background of neutrals appointed by them. Neutrals may of course be reluctant to share such information. Some institutions don't publish information about age. Data is thankfully increasingly available about gender, but less data seems to be available about the ethnicity and nationality of different types of neutral. And of course, we know very little about candidates appointed in ad hoc arbitrations, for example, where there's no institutional involvement and nobody's collecting the data. And it must be remembered that ad hoc arbitration is a major part of the arbitral landscape.
0: So there is a black hole here in the available data. So do we at least know if uh, the situation is changing? And if so, is there any progress made? Well, for every step
1: forward, such as, for example, the ICC achieving gender parity in the ICC court during 2018, there are still bridges to be crossed. There's a clear perception that most progress has been made in respect of gender diversity, and we see this. In the responses to the 2018 Queen Mary White and Case International Arbitration Survey, where 59% of the respondents agreed that progress had now been made in respect of gender diversity. And that contrasts quite starkly with the 39% of respondents who disagreed that progress had been made in respect of age diversity in the last five years. And the 37% that disagreed that progress had been made in respect of ethnic diversity. And that's significant. A great deal, therefore, still remains to be done in order to achieve what I would regard as true diversity and, importantly, inclusivity. Professor Catherine Rogers wrote in 2017 about something she described as the arbitrator diversity paradox. The clear consensus in the international arbitration community seems to be that there is a lack of diversity, but the results of surveys such as the 2017 BLP Diversity Survey indicates that there is an apparent inability to translate such consensus
0: into a greater diversity in appointments. That makes it hard to determine progress. So there seems to be an agreement that the problem exists, but do we have the statistics to see the scale of the problem? Well, as for the scale, let's turn to some of the numbers.
1: We'll start with CEDAR's report. CEDAR's report identified that just 33.6% of commercial mediators are women. And that comprises a mere 28.7% of the average commercial mediation panel. 92.6% of such mediators are white, and that compares with 86% of the general population. And the percentage of Asian and black mediators is significantly below the population level in particular. On the age front, only 22.5% of mediators getting work are under 50. The statistics are probably worse for arbitration. Just looking at gender for now, in the investor state arena, a 2017 study by Malcolm Langford, Daniel Bayen, and Runar Hilleren Lee, none of whose names I hope I have mispronounced, found that of the top 25 arbitrators by number of appointments, all save for four were from Western states, and only two were female. Looking at commercial arbitration a little bit more generally and institutional appointments in particular, 23% of all appointments by the LCIA in 2018 were female arbitrators, with 43% of those selected by the LCIA court. 27% of SCC-appointed arbitrators are female, which is an increase from 18% in 2017. But of those, 76% were appointed by the SCC. And it's obviously relevant to consider who is actually appointing female arbitrators. Is it the institutions or is it the parties? And it's also very important to remember that true diversity is intersectional. Every potential neutral is an amalgamation of different overlapping characteristics, different genders, ages, nationalities, sexual orientations, socioeconomic backgrounds, and so on. And it's really important when discussing diversity not to oversimplify the many hurdles that the ADR community faces. When it comes to achieving true diversity, which would obviously embrace all of those characteristics, it's not enough, for example, to simply replace the male in the dreaded male pale stale with female. The scope of the discussion, therefore,
0: continues to broaden. It's definitely not enough to replace male in male pale in stale with female. Therefore, following this point, let's go one step back. And discuss why is diversity so desirable in the first place? And what are the benefits of diversity in the field of ADR? Well, as to the benefits, research suggests that companies with diverse executive teams, basically
1: diverse decision makers, are more likely to have financial returns above the national median for their industry. Diverse viewpoints offer scope for stronger and more flexible decision-making, which leads to better outcomes. For example, the latest report from McKinsey & Company, Delivering Through Diversity, notes that companies in the top quartile for gender diversity on their executive teams were 21% more likely to outperform on profitability... And companies in the top quartile for ethnic and cultural diversity were 33% more likely to have industry-leading profitability. And this basically is suggestive that diversity in its myriad forms can be a key differentiating factor when it comes to success in business. Basically, diversity works.
0: Absolutely, diversity works. But how do these business successes translate into the field of dispute resolution?
1: Well, other studies have demonstrated that diversity in groups improves the quality of decision-making and the predictability of outcomes. Differences in approach and different points of view have a greater positive impact on group decisions than the capacity of the individuals who contribute to those decisions because diverse decision-makers quite simply introduce different diverse perspectives and different diverse interpretations, different problem-solving approaches and different decision-making models. Diverse decision-makers are also more likely to be able to avoid the perils of groupthink and cognitive biases. Now, groupthink operates as a subtle form of peer pressure, which effectively seeks to override independent decision-making in favour of striving for unanimity. The same criticisms may be raised of ADR decision makers and facilitators as are raised against judges. The decision makers and facilitators should be representative of those whose disputes they're considering. And this means that they should reflect, arguably, the institutions, communities, and parties whose disputes they must consider. The lack of diversity, therefore, poses a particular challenge to the legitimacy of investment arbitration, where appointments tend to be focused on a very small group that is tasked with deciding the disputes that have the potential to have a significant impact on states and their people. Basically, we're we're dealing with disputes on a very large stage. And it's absolutely vital that such decision makers are legitimate if the process is to be seen as legitimate. Now, in criminal proceedings in many countries one is normally entitled to have justice dispensed by a jury of one's peers. Now, how legitimate can an ADR mechanism really be if despite the primacy of party autonomy, one cannot identify an appropriate here, to put it that way, to resolve one's dispute if that is the kind of party that they want to be their dispute resolver. Rosters of neutrals may simply not include sufficient candidates for consideration that reflect a party's individual characteristics. And this issue was recently publicized by the rapper Jay-Z, unusually entering the arbitration arena, who complained that arbitration would be unfair because only two candidates out of those proposed to him identified as African-American.
0: Yeah, decision-makers shall be representative of those whose disputes they are resolving, which makes absolutely perfect sense. So why is it currently not the case? Could you tell us more about the origins of the problem? When appointing an arbitrator or, frankly, any other type
1: of neutral, the reality is that one simply wants to choose the best person for the job, regardless of gender, age, ethnic background, and so on. Now, when it comes to identifying that person... The reality is that law firms are unlikely to face criticism for proposing a list of safe, well-known, and well-established potential candidates to their clients. If clients are not presented with diverse candidates, which was less the case historically, then they're unlikely to select diverse arbitrators. And when it comes to institutional appointments, many institutions simply do not have sufficiently diverse rosters from which to select in any event. And that necessarily limits the number of diverse appointees who are available to be
0: nominated and appointed anyway. Okay, so you mentioned that law firms usually suggest well-established practitioners as safe choices. But how do they know about dispersant performance in the previous proceedings while arbitrations are... Definition confidential? Well, things are beginning to change a little bit, but historically, data driven
1: decision making in arbitrator selection was particularly difficult because there's quite simply a lack of information publicly available. And word of mouth remains a key source of data. If you want to know if somebody is a good arbitrator, you pick up the phone, you speak to one of your contacts, and you say, Have you sat with this person? Are they any good? Initiatives such as Arbitrator Intelligence are taking steps to try and increase the amount of information available about arbitrators with a view Due to increasing transparency and promoting diversity, but obviously it's going to take time for sufficient data to be collected and to become available about less established and more diverse candidates. So, yes, the amount of data is increasing, but at present there's still a lot of information about diverse candidates. We simply don't know. Now, of course, we cannot underestimate the role played by both conscious biases and unconscious biases. Those identifying potential neutrals, whether law firms, institutions or co-arbitrators, were arguably historically less aware of the need to identify their own biases in order to counteract them. Those unconscious attitudes that need to be challenged if you simply don't know that you think in a particular way about a particular type of person, you're not going to check your conduct. For example, numerous studies have shown that attitudes to things like publications and resumes differ depending on whether or not the reviewer is aware of the gender of the author of those particular
0: studies. It's very clear that unconscious biases play a big role. Let's focus on gender diversity then for a while. In your opinion, what are the key factors causing such huge disproportion between female... And male appointments? Well, from a gender
1: diversity perspective, I'm going to focus on two key explanations for the lack of successful female neutrals. By successful, I don't mean brilliant and fantastic because there's lots of those out there. It's just people don't always know that they're out there and ready to be appointed. The first is unconscious bias, which I've already mentioned. And the second is quite simply the lack of senior female practitioners in the pool from which to select. And this is often attributed to a phenomenon known as pipeline leak. There's a lack of senior female role models. In certain industries, for example, there's a lack of flexible working hours in some law firms and other professional environments. There are certain challenges that can be attributed to the difficulties inherent in balancing career and childcare, And those are burdens that often fall disproportionately on female practitioners. I'm not saying there's not lots of great fathers out there who are rising to the challenge. But these are things that are often a focus for potential female neutrals in particular, and they contribute to the pipeline leak issue. Now, law firms obviously bear their share of responsibility here because they're not in many cases creating an environment where female practitioners can progress to a level of seniority where they're likely to be considered for appointment as neutrals. And if things
0: are to change, then law firms have a clear responsibility to act here. How about uh, geographical diversity? We mentioned at the beginning that, regardless of the geographical location of the disputes and the parties involved, arbitrators usually come from Western Europe or North America. Well, from a geographical diversity perspective, despite
1: studies such as the 2018 SOAS Arbitration in Africa survey demonstrating that such conclusions are without foundation, I would suggest there is unfortunately a perception that there is a lack of sufficient training and education of neutrals in developing countries, uh, with the result that parties from such countries continue to appoint from the pool of, to put it bluntly, usual suspects. I'm not obviously trying to suggest that's the only reason for a lack of geographical diversity, but it is one of the contributing factors. And sticking with Africa as an example, it's clear that although there has been a significant increase in the number of FDI disputes arising in sub-Saharan Africa in recent years, the vast majority of those cases are not being resolved by African arbitrators. They're being resolved by those arbitrators from Western Europe and North America to which you've referred. And this, frankly, needs to change if
0: we are to see true geographical diversity in the future. This absolutely needs to change. So let's discuss potential solutions to the current situation. What's being done at the moment in the EDR community to promote diversity? Well, there's a great deal being
1: done. Diversity is obviously a hot topic and has been for a number of years. But let's face it, as a community, we still have a great deal more to do. We're a very long way from parity. We're a very long way from true diversity in respect of a number of the different types of diversity that we've been discussing today organizations have led the way in pioneering awareness of the lack of gender diversity in particular. And the progress made to date, I would suggest, is the hard-won result of years of work by organizations such as Arbitral Women, which celebrated its 25th anniversary last year. That's 25 years of fighting to increase the number of women who are being appointed as neutrals. And there have also been a number of very successful high-profile initiatives such as the Pledge and In late 2018, it was announced that the pledge had now reached 3,000 signatories, which is great. That's 3,000 people who are committed to increasing the number of female neutrals. And the focus now from the pledge's perspective is on gaining support from corporations with recent signatories, including companies such as Barclays. Obviously, it's really important to get people to buy in from the client side and we're also witnessing the emergence of new organizations that have as their mandate the promotion of female dispute resolvers in specific regions such as Women Way in Arbitration Latam which focuses on the Latin American region in particular Now, the Chartered Institute is also continuing to promote diversity internationally. And of course, as an international educational leader, it has a great platform to do that. And with recent initiatives, such as its very popular CIR Women in ADR campaign and its annual lecture to celebrate International Women's Day, it has definitely managed to shine a light
0: on the need for gender diversity this year in particular. These are all great examples of initiatives led by organizations like CRRP or Arbitral Women. But what about arbitral institutions? They have more actual power to influence appointments, for instance, appointing sole arbitrators. How does it look from an institutional perspective? Arbitral institutions definitely have a key role to play and to continue to
1: play in promoting diversity at both council and arbitrator level. Much remains, unfortunately, to be done to address the paradoxical chicken and egg problem that's faced by young aspiring arbitrators. Basically, and perhaps understandably, parties and institutions are reluctant to appoint those who've never been appointed before. If you don't have experience, you can't get experience, and this makes it quite difficult to enter the field as a neutral. There are, however, a number of institutional initiatives on foot at present to try and encourage parties to consider diversity and to try and increase the number of diverse neutrals. And JAMS, for example, was the first major provider of ADR services to add a model diversity rider to its clause workbook. And that encourages parties to think carefully about diversity when drafting their dispute resolution clauses. I mean, let's focus on diversity from the earliest possible stage before a dispute even arises. Uh, SEAC has a reserve panel of younger arbitrators, which aims to give opportunities to those who are less established but still very experienced as arbitrators if a suitable dispute arises. CPR has incorporated uh, what's called a young lawyer rule into its arbitration rules, the idea being to provide young lawyers with greater scope to conduct advocacy at hearings. If people get the opportunity to see you in action doing a good job in the future, you're much more likely to get appointments. Similar rules were applied by federal judges in New York, and that initiative has been very successful, and that has helped to increase speaking opportunities for female and ethnic minority lawyers appearing in the state. So hopefully the same thing will happen for CPR arbitrations in due course. There've also been a number of innovative initiatives by litigation funders such as Burford Capital, which has effectively earmarked specific funding for claims led by female counsel, which is great because obviously it allows female team leaders in those firms who've got good
0: cases to go to a litigation funder who has a specific pot of money that's designed to help. It's great to hear that there are so many initiatives led by not only institutions, but only litigation funders. But moving on from the arbitral uh, institutions and their spectrum, what else, in your opinion, needs to be done to improve diversity?
1: Ah, the million dollar question. As they say. <laughs> well, as for what else needs to be done, education, I think, is key. A number of organizations, and notably Arbitral Women, have developed toolkits that they are using to educate users about the dangers of unconscious bias. And such educational initiatives help us to identify our own biases and to take steps to prevent them from influencing our decision making. If you want to find out more about your own biases, there are some great tests on the internet, for example, that you can take, and you'll probably be as surprised as I was to discover certain biases that you might not be aware of. Apparently, I associate women with scientific careers. That was a particularly interesting revelation for me. Institutions have a continual role to play in increasing diversity too, of course, with the focus to be given not just to gender, but to other forms of diversity. And I appreciate that gender is the type of diversity that has received probably the most focus to date. But there's still a great deal more to be done, as we've discussed. Outreach initiatives to broaden rosters, for example, are likely to be important here because diverse candidates need to know how they can become members of the panels and get appointed in the future. Law firms, of course, have a vital role to play in identifying suitable candidates for appointment and persuading their clients that the best person for the job – And I use that in sort of inverted commas terms. The best person for the job may not always be the most obvious. Users are increasingly indicating that diversity is a priority for them. And this is evidenced, for example, by letters that have been signed by US and UK General counsel. I mean, it's not the clients are not interested in diversity. It's definitely something that they are keen on. And time will tell whether this attitude eventually translates into higher numbers of diverse arbitrators and diverse mediators in the future. But law firms really do have a key role to play in educating their clients about the benefits of diversity from a decision-making perspective as well. The responsibility of law firms does not stop there. It is really incumbent on law firms to foster an environment in which diverse counsel can progress to partnership There's some statistics in this area as well, which are a little bit depressing. The National Association for Legal Placement's annual report on U.S. law firm diversity, for example, which surveys over 109,000 partners and associates plus 6,900 summer associates for good measure, has identified minor increases in partnership levels for women and minority partners. And it's basically characterized these, and I quote, as minimal at best. That's simply not good enough. And minority women have been identified, and again, quoting NALP's executive director, James Leopold, in this regard as the most underrepresented group at the partnership level. It's vital that positive steps are taken to identify and tackle barriers to progression at every single stage, from recruitment to training to promotion and to the way in which work is allocated within teams. And unconscious biases, of course, within the law firm environment and within each of these stages need to be identified and addressed. We could do an entire podcast just on the many ways in which law firms need to be conscious of potential barriers at different stages of career progression within firms. And as a community, we need to make sure that the highest standards of training are upheld and that potential neutrals, wherever they're based in the world, have access to quality training. And organizations like the Chartered Institute have a huge role to play in this regard because, of course, the Institute's training is internationally known and internationally renowned. In this way, if everybody is properly trained to a fantastic standard, users can be confident that neutrals from, for example, less developed jurisdictions have the skills required to excel if they are appointed. They can do the job as well as an arbitrator from Western Europe or from the US. And the arbitration community and institutions also need to work together to develop opportunities for aspiring arbitrators to gain the experience necessary to obtain appointments in the long run. As the caseload of institutions continues to grow, and let's face it, more disputes than ever are being resolved by arbitration, ADR is definitely here to stay just in case anyone was concerned, it's important to identify appropriate disputes that can be dealt with by less experienced arbitrators and to provide appropriate support to enable those appointed for the first time for their first few appointments to excel. And mentoring initiatives and the identification of suitable role models both have a very important part to play here.
0: Speaking of those less experienced, what can potential candidates considering a career in ADR, coming from these underrepresented groups, do to increase their chances of success in this field? To be honest, much of my advice for aspiring practitioners
1: is going to be the same regardless of their background. Although, of course, we all have our own unique selling points, and aspiring practitioners from atypical or unusual backgrounds can generally use those experiences to stand out for the right reasons. So I'm going to start by saying begin by getting the basics right. If you're still studying, select modules that allow you to demonstrate your interest in commercial and international law, for example. Work as hard as you possibly can to get good grades because academic excellence is a given in a very, very competitive field. It is not an easy field to enter the ADR arena, particularly the international arbitration arena. I would be misleading if I said it was it was a walk in the park, basically, and getting really good academics
0: is... A crucial first step. It's definitely not a walk in the park. So yeah, academic excellence is naturally required, but it's probably insufficient in itself, isn't it? Are there any extracurricular activities which you would recommend outside of the regular studies? Take advantage of opportunities to participate in activities that will help you to
1: develop practical ADR skills that you will need in your future career. And for students, those opportunities include, for example, competitions such as the terribly well-known Viz Moot. It's great fun as well. There's also the FDI Moot, which I had the pleasure of coaching a team for a couple of years ago. There's the Jessup Moot, and there's a number of other mooting competitions. They're very well-known and highly regarded. There are also competitions such as the ICC Mediation Competition, which are becoming increasingly well-known. These experiences will help you to develop drafting, oral advocacy, research, and team-working skills. All of those things are vital if you're going to succeed in ADR. And they will also allow you to begin building an international network, which is hugely important, particularly in international arbitration. There are also a number of essay competitions on offer, including the Young Members Group Annual Essay Competition. Getting your written work published will help you to begin to build your profile in ADR, and let's face it, an article lasts longer than a speaking engagement. There are plenty of opportunities to contribute to thought leadership in ADR as well, such as writing for the Kluwer Arbitration or Mediation blogs, or writing for the Young Icker blog, or by submitting a piece to an academic journal. The Young Members Group um, has a newsletter as well. When I chaired the Young Members Group, I was always encouraging people to contribute good quality pieces to that publication. So a a little plug there for the Young Members Group newsletter. Aspiring ADR practitioners as well must continually strive to develop and hone their professional skills. Now, again, institutions such as the Chartered Institute, uh, the ICC as well, and other organizations offer arbitration-specific courses that allow candidates to obtain internationally recognized certification of their knowledge. Students can start with a free online introduction to ADR course if you sign up for free student membership of the Chartered Institute, and obviously there are lots of other organizations that offer similar sorts of opportunities to develop your skills. A number of universities also run summer schools, for example for those who are particularly interested in the field. So there's plenty of extracurricular activity. If, if getting good academics is, you know, is not filling your time, there's, there's a lot more that you can be doing.
0: Absolutely. So the courses are definitely a solid foundation of the skills and knowledge, but it is often said that practice makes perfect. So what would you recommend to aspiring practitioners to do in order to gain relevant experience in the field?
1: There's lots of different opportunities on offer. Some are associateships, internships, work experience placements in the field of ADR. All of these offer invaluable opportunities to gain an insight into the inner workings of a dispute resolution practice, an arbitral institution, or an NGO. There is, however, significant competition for places, so it's important to think very carefully about your applications and work out what you have to offer if you do choose to apply. And make sure, of course, that you apply many months in advance In addition, don't underestimate the value of obtaining experience in firms that have a mixed litigation and arbitration practice or that handle specific types of ad hoc arbitration work, of which there is, of course, a great deal in London. Such work is likely to broaden your ADR knowledge and it'll introduce opportunities to experience mediation, construction adjudication, negotiation, and more. In addition, if you're looking to further develop your skills, think very carefully about language skills. Aspiring practitioners from different backgrounds may be able to bring valuable language skills to an arbitration practice. After all, this is an international field. Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, Mandarin, French, German, Arabic, and more are increasingly being sought after by arbitration practices. So if you've got some time, work on your language skills. It's likely to be invaluable in the future.
0: Language skills and taking other opportunities are indeed very important. But first, somebody needs to know about these opportunities. So what would you advise someone to become more involved in the dispute resolution community in general? Well, I think networking is invaluable for young and aspiring practitioners. I mean, it's
1: invaluable for those at every stage of their careers. But it's particularly valuable for those from atypical backgrounds. Finding your place in the international ADR community is extremely important. You need to find mentors, you need to find role models, you need to make those connections. So join organizations such as the Chartered Institute and Arbitral Women, which offer supportive worldwide membership communities and opportunities to participate in initiatives and events at different levels. There's events for young practitioners, there's events for more senior practitioners, there's general all-embracing events, the list goes on. In addition, make sure that you join the young practitioner groups of arbitral institutions and that you actually attend the events and participate in the initiatives that they're offering don't just join and sit back and wait for opportunities to come to you i usually say to students who ask me about developing their careers in arbitration you know what would you have done differently when you were younger and i generally say i would have said yes to more more opportunities when people asked if i wanted to do something i should have said yes apply to join those committees offer to speak offer to help organize events and basically just say yes to opportunities to get more involved. Yes, of course, it's got a time requirement and we're all very busy, but these are experiences you can't buy and it's definitely worth getting involved. And if you come from a jurisdiction with no established ADR groups, then you know what? Consider establishing an informal networking group of your own. Sometimes we have to make our own opportunities. So I encourage everybody to go out there and use their initiative to find ways of capitalizing on their own unique selling points. You can use networking to find informal mentors, and you can also apply to join more formal mentoring schemes. And I always encourage people to have more than one mentor. There is value in diverse viewpoints, as we've already discussed. Young ICA, Arbitral Women, Young ITA, and the CEA all offer mentorship schemes. Some of those, of course, focus specifically on women. Others focus on young practitioners across the globe. So I definitely encourage anyone interested in the field to consider applying for those schemes. New schemes are springing up everywhere all the time, so keep your eyes open for opportunities in your jurisdiction and beyond. The insights of mentors from different walks of life are likely to be absolutely invaluable to those seeking to progress, particularly if you come from an underrepresented group in the field. You might not be able to find a high-profile arbitrator who is in exactly the same position as you are, from exactly the same background. But you know what? Experience is transferable, and finding mentors whose insights are valuable is very, very important. Last but not least, do not underestimate the value of social media to help you connect with and identify opportunities and informal mentors from all over the world. Let's face it, if you can't afford to travel, you can reach an international audience from your desk by sharing articles, news, and insights via social media. Now, some people would say, I probably spend far too much time on social media sharing random musings on arbitration issues, but I've met some wonderful people by doing that. I've been able to obtain some invaluable experiences. And so use social media professionally. It's not Facebook. Use it professionally. Use it well, and it's a fantastic tool to have in your in your toolbox.
0: It definitely is a fantastic tool. Thank you so much, Mandy, for your fantastic insights into the topic of diversity. You walk us through the current situations, origins of the problem, and various potential solutions. But most importantly, thank you very much for these great recommendations for aspiring practitioners. I'm sure that our listeners will greatly benefit from your tips. As for my part, I can honestly recommend following Mendy on all social media accounts, as well as following Chartered Institute of Arbitrators to stay up to date with our various events, courses and other opportunities. Thank you so much, Mendy.
1: Thank you very much, Natalia. And best of luck, of course, to all those looking to succeed in the ADR arena.